Will you take your Bibles and turn to Luke 2? We just read from that particular section of Scripture beginning in verse 1, and I'm not going to repeat that, but I would like to repeat verses 8 through 14 because I would like to preach from this text this morning. And there we read, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The context here is very important. Because of Israel's sin, the glorious presence of God had been removed from their midst some 400 years earlier. Ezekiel describes that departure, where the glory of God, his, the brilliant light of his Shekinah, leaves from the temple and goes out over the eastern side of Jerusalem, goes up across the Mount of Olives, and disappears. And because of their sin, Ichabod had been written across the door of the temple, you might say. They had not heard from a prophet for 400 years. There had been no prophetic announcement for 400 years. All they heard was a solemn silence. And now suddenly... This terrifying light illuminates a hillside in Bethlehem. What a fascinating thing to think about the group that God chose to reveal this good news to. His first public announcement of one of the greatest events in the history of the world is revealed to these, these lowly, uh, socially and religiously unacceptable people, an anonymous band of shepherds caring for sheep that would probably be used for the sacrifices in the temple. He didn't appear to some massive crowd in Jerusalem. He didn't appear to the religious elite. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to Herod and all of the political movers and shakers of the land. Of course, God never seems to understand how to properly market his ministry, right? Instead, he appears to these sheep herders. It's a dirty, thankless job. And with my cowboy background, I much prefer cattle over sheep, but I know what sheep smell like. And I know what shepherds smell like. Some of them are my friends. But in those days, frankly, even as in today, it was a low-paying job. And with shepherds of that day, it required no education, very little skill, only a willingness to live with a bunch of smelly, stupid sheep 24-7. Imagine that. Because of this, they were unable to observe the Sabbath, and therefore they were lawbreakers, according to the Jews. And beyond that, they were social outcasts. They were spiritual outcasts. In fact, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. They were so outcast. 
And of course, this is just the type of people the Lord loves to reveal himself to, right? I can see myself among that group. It's interesting that even later on, the Lord himself called himself the good shepherd. God's choice of these shepherds, dear friends, for this supernatural revelation of the birth of of the Messiah really illustrates his desire to offer salvation to the meek and to the lowly, not to the proud and the haughty. And that's what we see here. In fact, Mary praised God for this very thing in Luke 1, verse 52. There she said, he has put down the might from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And of course, this was consistent with Isaiah's prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 61, in verse 1, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And of course, he's speaking here on behalf of the Messiah. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, let's go to the scene there on that Bethlehem hillside. Some of the shepherds would have been asleep, getting some rest. Others would remain vigilant because it's nighttime. It's a dangerous time because of predators, because of thieves. And if you know anything about being in the wilderness, so to speak, at night, you know that your anxiety level is increased. There's kind of a pervasive dread of something bad happening, and you can't see very well. And so your senses are all heightened. And all of this stimulates your imagination. And then suddenly, verse 9, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. I mean, put yourself in that position. (laughs) Absolutely incomprehensible. Moreover, it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, folks, they would have been paralyzed with shock. To see an angel suddenly standing before you, coming out of the darkness, and he's enveloped in this, in this dazzling cloud of, of, of light, the Shekinah glory of God. Now, this would have required divine intervention to protect them from even going blind, not to mention having heart failure. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. As we look at this text, I would like to focus on four things. We're going to look at the announcement, the recipients, the source, and the purpose of this good news of great joy. So let's look closely at what the Lord has to say here. First of all, regarding the announcement in verse 10. But the angel, and that was probably Gabriel for a number of reasons, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now, naturally, they're terribly frightened. I mean, they're standing, they're standing before them was a messenger of the Most High God, whose glorious presence now surrounded them in, in this resplendent holiness, which naturally evokes fear of divine judgment. I mean, please understand, every image bearer has an innate awareness of God's law combined with an innate system called the conscience that warns them when they violate the law. Although we know, according to Romans 1 and other passages, even the unregenerate suppress that truth and unrighteousness. This actually leaves them without excuse. Moreover, this awareness, this innate awareness will actually be a witness against them on the day of judgment. We know that God is constantly revealing his wrath against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men, according to Romans 1. And he does this indirectly through the natural consequences of violating his universal law. Uh, We see this in 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 the law of sowing and reaping, those principles. But he also does this directly through his own personal intervention. And we've seen him judge the wicked over the years, the effects of his curse upon Adam and Eve and their descendants for sin is, is a curse that affects all of us. I mean, we can look by, back and see his judgment in the worldwide flood, the fire and brimstone that annihilated the godless homosexuals in Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues upon Egypt, the Babylonian captivity, and on it goes. And, of course, the most graphic display of his holy wrath and his hatred of sin was displayed when he poured out his judgment upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. And every man and woman knows that one day he or she will stand before God during a time of judgment. And for those of us who know Christ, we know we will stand there blameless with great joy, right? Because of Christ. But not so for those who have never embraced Christ as Savior. Well, these shepherds were no different. Suddenly they're exposed under the, the, the white light of divine revelation. And if any of us were to be exposed like that, Suddenly, all of our strategies of, of suppression of the truth of who we are and who God is would be completely obliterated. Sin and guilt would be exposed. Plus, you must bear in mind that in those days, they believed that anyone who saw the glory of God would die. So they thought it was over for them. Ah, but the news is not one of judgment, is it? It's one of forgiveness. And it's fitting that the first evangelist in the gospel dispensation would be an angel. Likewise, it will also be an angel that makes the final proclamation of good news. First Thessalonians 4.16, we read that the Lord himself will come. There will be the voice of the archangel. and They will summon the saints out of the grave and those who are alive into glory. So these shepherds see this angel and the ineffable, terrifying radiance of God's Shekinah, as the Hebrews called it, the glory of the Lord, this blazing, brilliant light. And it's interesting, as we look in Scripture, we see other examples of this light. Let me give you but a few and how some others actually survived seeing it by God's grace. You will recall that this is the same light that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the violated uh, tablets of, of, of the law that were in that Ark. And all of that was separated by the mercy seat. And between the outstretched arms of of the, the cherubim that would have been on top of the mercy seat would be the brilliant light of his Shekinah. And of course, all of that depicted the unapproachable holiness of God, apart from the shedding of blood upon the place of propitiation that would allow man who had violated the law to enter into the presence of his glory. We know that the Shekinah also was seen at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Remember Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. They were told not to even approach the mountain unless they wanted to die. The mountain was covered in smoke, we read, and the Lord descended in fire, the sound of a trumpet. It was extremely loud, terrifying the people. We read how the smoke ascended from the mountain like a furnace, that the whole mountain, the whole area shook violently. And Moses had to set a boundary around the mountain so that the people would not get near the holiness of God and be consumed. 
The Lord spoke to Moses in Exodus 19:21, "Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish." And in the giving of the law in Exodus 20 beginning in verse 18, we read, "And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the, when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance." And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. And in Exodus 24, 17, we read into the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Indeed, dear friends, our God is a consuming fire. In fact, that babe that was in the manger is a consuming fire. He even said that all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. His holiness should therefore evoke within all of us a trembling. And the sound of his voice, even as we hear it revealed in his word, should motivate us to instant obedience and immediate praise for his mercy and for his grace. The Shekinah also came upon the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord, there's the Shekinah, filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see, the dazzling light of his Shekinah was always a sign of the manifestation of his holy presence Remember in Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. And what does he say? Woe is me. I am disintegrating. He was so horrified that he immediately confessed his sin and pronounced a curse upon himself. In Ezekiel 1 and verse 28, we read about the brightness of the glory of the Lord. It was so overwhelming that Ezekiel falls on his face as a dead man in complete horror. In Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John see the glory of the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus somehow peels back some of his flesh and, 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 and the effulgence of his glory blazes forth and they fall on their face in terror. Paul fell to his face when he was confronted with the glory of the Lord on the road to Damascus. John passed out with fear when he saw the glory of the Lord and, and the ascended Christ in Revelation 1. So naturally, the shepherds needed to be comforted by the angel. We get so used to people talking flippantly how they've seen the Lord and they've talked with the Lord that we fail to understand how phony that is. But what is the announcement? He says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, dear friends, he could have come in judgment, judging the earth as he did in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have come in terrifying holiness like he did at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, but rather then issuing a well-deserved sentence upon the ungodly as a judge, he comes as a savior to seek and to save the lost. So no wonder it is good news of great joy. You know, ponder that for a moment. I know that we live in a very sad world, don't we? Every time you turn on the news, there's just one depressing story after another. So many people filled with despair and very few people experience real, legitimate, soul-satisfying joy, especially in the midst of great difficulties. 
So they're constantly chasing after all of the pleasures of this world. (laughs) And how long do they last? Eventually those things that we once found simply irresistible, they lose their luster and even prove to be a disappointment. Disappointment. They promise more than they could ever deliver. How long does that new car bring real joy to your life, right? I mean, they change the looks of them just a little bit every year to make you dissatisfied with the one you've got. Or that new gadget, or that new home, or those new clothes, or the endless things that we clamor for. And often those things that we pursue to bring life, to bring joy, end up destroying us. Think of drugs and pornography and power, prestige, wealth, whatever it is. Just look at the lives of those who have had everything, like Solomon. Remember in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, and here's a man that had it all. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Chapter 2, 11, he says, I considered all my activities, which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. And if you read on, you will see how that he learned that the only source of lasting joy was found somewhere other than that which is on earth. The only source of lasting joy was associated with the glory of God, and his conclusion was simply this in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen: Fear God and keep his commandments. Dear friends, that's where you find lasting joy and real life. And this is how God intended for man to enjoy his life, to make the most of every opportunity in reverence for God and loving him, trembling before his word and so forth. And this was the good news the angel brought. It's for this reason that the writer of Hebrews said that Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews 11. Unfortunately, this Christmas, millions of people will clamor after things that are eternally inconsequential and will never bring lasting joy. And in most cases, it will bring disappointment and utter destruction. I could ask you young people, what do you want for Christmas? And if you're like most young people, I mean, if you're real little, I know like, like with, the, with, the, with our little girls, they want, what's the new, um, this new doll thing that Disney has, uh, some Frozen or something? They want Frozen stuff or whatever. And for most other young people, they want some electronic gadget, you know, some a new cell phone or a new something for your video games or or and I know a lot of adults. One of the hot gifts I understand is this Alexa thing where you talk into it and and it takes over your life somehow. I don't understand how all that works. And by the way, I'm not saying those things are bad necessarily. I'm just saying that. The newness will wear off real quick then it'll be time for something else. Have you ever been to a yard sale? Think of the thousands of millionaires that kill themselves every year. My friends, please hear me. There is nothing on earth that will bring lasting joy. Nothing. The source of eternal, soul-satisfying, lasting joy is... The very reason for this season, and that is Christ. The 17th century hymn writer John Mason captured this perfectly in his hymn when he said, I need not go abroad for joy. I have a feast at home. My sighs are turned into songs. The comforter is come. Down from above, the blessed dove has come into my breast to witness God's eternal love. This is my heavenly feast. I find it interesting knowing the great difficulties that would await every believer in this fallen world just before our Lord 
ascended back into glory. He, he interceded on behalf of his apostles and ultimately all of us. And he asked the Father in John seven thirteen that we may have his joy made, made full in us. And in answer to that prayer, the Father brings joy. Can I digress for a moment? Let, let me give you five subjective experiences of supernatural joy, just for a moment. Number one, if you want real joy, abide in his love by keeping his commandments. Get serious about obedience to Christ. John fifteen eleven. these things Jesus said, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Secondly, you'll find real joy through answered prayer. John sixteen twenty four. until now you have asked me for, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Thirdly, We can find real joy through the confident hope of future fellowship with our resurrected Savior. Chapter 16, verse 22 of of John, he says, Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Folks, aren't you glad we have the hope of heaven? We have the hope of Christ. Fourthly, we can find joy through faith in Christ who protects our inheritance. It's reserved in heaven. First Peter 1, 5. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 8 and following, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Aren't you glad he's protecting your salvation and you're not protecting it? And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And then finally, we can find real joy through the feeding upon his word. Jesus said, I have given them thy word, John 17, 14. And of course, this is such a great catalyst to animate the heart of every believer. And it's for this reason the psalmist declared in Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And Jeremiah said this in chapter 15, verse 16, Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. 1 John 1, 4, these things we write unto you that your joy may be full, and on and on it goes. Dear Christian, if you want to experience real joy, then abide in him through your faithful obedience. Pursue him in your own private worship and in prayer and in fellowshipping with him. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And habitually meditate, meditate upon the staggering truths of, of your salvation and all that that means. And then you will sing with the psalmist in Psalm 1611, In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's nothing... There is nothing greater than the systematic, in-depth study of the Word of God to really help you see who God really is and who you really are and what He has promised. And through that, our joy is animated. This is the recipe for joy. It is a gift that God has given us. It's for this reason that Paul said, we exult in our tribulations, Romans 5, 3. Literally means because of them. Why? Why would you rejoice because of them? Because you know God's at work in you. He's doing something for your good and for his glory. This is why we count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Why would we do that, as James tells us in James 1, 2? Why would we do that? Because we know God is at work. The Father's pruning work is working on us so that we can bear much fruit, John 15, the fruit of righteousness, to have righteous desires and godly motives and Christ-exalting virtues and behaviors. 
And some of you I know right now are experiencing the painful pruning of the father. Well, count it all joy because he's up to some things that are grand and glorious in your life. And it's for this reason that Peter encouraged the suffering saints when he said, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. First Peter 4.13. Oh, dear Christian, don't forfeit the joy that is available to you in Christ. Live in his presence. And for this reason, again, Peter said in first Peter 1.8, you rejoice Are you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls? Dear friend, if you know nothing of this kind of joy, you know nothing of my Savior. And you simply must do business with God. So the angel appears to these lowly shepherds. I must move ahead. They are the recipients of this thrilling news. Again, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And this is my second little point with you. This is an expression that Luke uses frequently to refer to the people of Israel, all the people. However, in verse 14, we will see that this gospel message is extended to all men with whom he is pleased, which I'll explain in a moment, which will include Gentiles as well as Jews, every nation, tongue, and tribe, Revelation 7, 9. You see, the gospel would go first to the Jews, but it would also be proclaimed as a message to the whole world, consistent with the Lord's Great Commission in Matthew 28. Remember, Jesus said that, that salvation is from the Jews, John four twenty two. But the prophet Isaiah also reveals that it would be offered to the Gentiles. Chapter 60 and verse 1 of Isaiah, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And we see a sample of that here and what happened with the shepherds. And in light of this prophecy, you will remember when, when Simeon saw baby Jesus in the temple, he declared this in John 2, beginning in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the, catch this, Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Now, thirdly, what is the source of this soul-thrilling joy? Well, verse 11, for today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior who is Christ. In other words, Messiah. It can be translated Messiah. The Lord, which means master. By the way, here is another irrefutable affirmation of, of the deity of Christ. That he is your Savior and your Lord, born for you. And herein is this indescribable gift. A personal Savior. Let this sink in for a moment. I mean, folks, it it was you. If you know Christ today, it it was your face that he saw even before he created you. It was you that he loved even while you were yet sinful. And it was you for whom he descended from the glories of heaven, took on the form of a man, lived a perfect life so that he could be a sacrifice for you specifically, bearing your sins in his body specifically. Such personal and intimate love is beyond anything that I can fathom. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, I mean, it's one thing for the God of glory to condescend to such a place as this and take on a finite human body. I mean, that's that's incomprehensible. But then, folks, think of this. For him to then take up residence in a sinful body like yours and mine. 
That's altogether more unfathomable to me. And yet, we know that we are in Christ, right? Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That little preposition in, in Christ, signifies the deep wonder that Christ is more than the one who is with us. He is more than one who is somehow outside of us, but rather he is one who is in us and we are in him. Absolutely incomprehensible. To be in Christ means that we share a common spiritual life with him. For according to Colossians 3, 3, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. He is our life, Colossians 3, 4. He lives in us, Galatians 2, 20, and on it goes. I love what A.W. Pink said, quote, what an astonishing thing it is that there should be a union between the Son of God and worms of the earth. Infinitely more so than if the king of Great Britain had married the poorest and ugliest woman in all his realm. How immeasurable is the distance between the creator and the creature, between deity and mortal man. How wonderful beyond words that sinful wretches should be made one with him before whom the seraphim veil their face and cry, holy, holy, holy. An amazing thought. I mean, think about it, folks. Though we were once separated from him because of our sin, because of his great mercy, we know that he set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Absolutely astounding to me. He made us alive with Christ in keeping with that union decreed in eternity past, a a union that becomes, frankly, the legal basis for the imputation of Christ's righteousness to to guilty sinners. You see, it would have been a terrible miscarriage of justice for God to declare a guilty sinner to be righteous and having atoned for his own sins when, in fact, he had not done so. Can you imagine being a mass murderer coming before a judge and you know you're guilty? You're, you're, the, the judge is going to condemn you and sentence you, and somebody comes up and says, hey, I'll take, I'll, I'll take that for him. Well, there's no justice in that unless that guilty sinner is in and united to the one who will take the punishment. God justifies the ungodly. He declares them to be righteous, Romans 4.4. How so? How can that be? Because we are in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Colossians 3.3, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We've been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Oh, dear friends, our union with Christ is not merely some reward for our justification. It is the very prerequisite for it. And think of it, dear Christian, this union with Christ is the very source of all of our spiritual blessings. It is a nature-changing reality that is so certain that it is described as that which has already been accomplished. We see this all through Scripture. So yes, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, meaning the Master. Folks, he is the source of my joy, is the source of is the source of your joy. I hope he is. You see, he is not Christ is not some means to an end. No, no. He is the all sufficient, all glorious in, in himself. Christ is the gospel. He is the personification of the gospel. 
because we are in him. And beloved, if someone asks you to to define what is it to be a Christian, tell them a Christian is one whom the triune God dwells within eternally. And on that basis, empowers that individual to manifest the fruits of righteousness. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he came as a Savior to seek and to save lost sinners like you and me. Again, it says, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, which means the Anointed One or the Messiah or the Lord. The Lord is curious in the original language. Um, it, it's it's a, a divine title that encompasses all that is implied in what is called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yahweh, translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as, as Lord. This is the great I Am of John's Gospel. This term refers to the the pre-existent, self-existent, uncreated creator of the universe. This is God. This is Jesus. God, very God. And if you do not confess him as your Savior and your Lord, as God, very God, you will spend an eternity in hell. This is the one who reigns supreme over his entire universe. This is the babe that we see in the manger. That's why we say Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is Lord, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He was anointed by the Father as prophet, priest, and king. We see this throughout Scripture. He was a prophet that came to proclaim the gospel of God. He is a priest that came to offer himself as the perfect and final sacrifice of sin for sin and, and the mediator between God and man. And he is, he is a king that, 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 that rules and reigns and will one day return as king of kings and lord of lords. Think about it. The uncreated creator that made you. The one that you and I have offended in ways that we can't even begin to count. Left the realms of glory to take upon himself this fallen body. And ultimately suffer and die in our stead so that we can have eternal life. My friend, if that doesn't evoke within you great love and praise, nothing will. Now back to the shepherds. Don't you know they're wondering, oh my, we've got to go see the king. And I'm sure they're probably thinking to themselves, you know, where are we going to find him in Bethlehem? Uh, uh, Will he be seated upon uh, a, a throne of grandeur? Will he be surrounded by heavenly hosts? Will he be clothed in purple robes and majestic splendor? Is that how we can find him? Will he be illumined by unapproachable light? Will he be surrounded by all of the religious elite of Israel? No, no, no. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I mean, folks, can you imagine how absurd that must have sounded to the shepherds? I mean, we've read this so many times, we kind of take it for granted, but, but th- this is incomprehensible. Is it any wonder that the very thought of such unimaginable condescension and humility triggered the kind of response that it did from the heavenly host? Verse 13, suddenly there, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. In other words, an army of angelic beings, and they're praising God. It's as though they're, they're, they're waiting in the background, waiting to somehow appear to join their colleague when he gets finished because they're just exploding with praise. How many were there? I don't know. It says a multitude. What does that mean? Well, an enormously large group that we couldn't count. You know, I have to laugh when I, th- when I think about this. I put myself in the scene. You know, it would have been one thing to be terrified to see one angel and he kind of calms me down and I'm still shaking. My adrenaline's going and I-, I can't even speak. And then all of a sudden you see all of these angels. <sighs> Imagine the scene, dear friends. 
these ministering spirits of the Most High God who instantly and perfectly do His bidding. These magnificent creatures, eyewitnesses to to the majesty and grandeur of the triune God. And now, because of a love that they cannot wrap their minds around, now they are eyewitnesses to a new dimension of the glory of God. And that new dimension is the incarnation. And what are they doing? Verse 13, they're praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. This leads me to the final point, the purpose of this good news of great joy. Notice carefully their words in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The the King James Version has an unfortunate translation that is most confusing. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And many misinterpret this text on that basis. They use it out of context. You see it in yard decorations all the time, Christmas cards. I know some of you are saying, oh, no, I'm going to have to, don't, don't send that card. Don't worry about it. If you send it to me, I'll, I'll overlook it. But, you know, peace on earth means the absence of conflict. You know, Jesus has come and he's going to stop all the wars and, and we can enjoy some relaxed peace of mind and we can have tranquility. And, you know, that's typical of our neat, naive, theologically ignorant society. What people fail to understand is because of sin, as Jesus said, the wrath of God abides upon the sinner, right? Jesus didn't come to bring peace, he said, but to bring a sword. Because of sin, man is separated from God. He is by nature a child of wrath. He is alienated from God. Jesus said they serve their father, the devil. But what's being said here is that because of Christ, sinful people can be reconciled to God and have peace with him. The war can be over. So glory to God in the highest because he has provided a way for us to be reconciled to a holy God and be at peace with him. Notice the phrase commonly used here, with whom he is pleased. Um, And then it goes on and like the New King James, the King James says, goodwill toward men. And again, many use this inappropriately. They naive, naively think that, you know, goodwill towards men. Well, Jesus comes so that we can all just get along, right? So that we can all be happy together, kind of a variation of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And others erroneously think that somehow this is a reference, you know, when it says with whom he is pleased, refers to salvation by works. I've heard that before. It's absurd. But literally, it's peace among men of his good pleasure or peace among men with whom he is pleased. Folks, here's what the angels are saying. Glory to God in the highest. Those who are the sovereignly chosen recipients of his grace, purely on the basis of his good pleasure. And because of that, they can now have peace with God by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the savior that has come. You see, all who have received the gift of salvation do so solely on the basis of his good pleasure. There is nothing in salvation that is dependent upon the will of man, that he should share in the glory of it. All of the glory belongs to him, and thus glory to God in the highest. Spurgeon put it this way, the only glad tidings that made the angels sing are those that put God first, God last, God midst, and God without end and the salvation of his creatures, and put the crown holy and alone upon the head of him that saves without a helper. Glory to God in the highest is the angel's song. Well, folks, this was the theology that evoked the angelic adoration. The angels are thinking to themselves, my, what love, what mercy, what grace. So they erupt in this angelic praise, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The hymnist captured this perfectly, didn't he? 
Angels from the realms of glory wing your downward flight to earth. Ye who sing creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Dear friends, may I challenge you today and especially this Christmas season that if you have never bowed the knee to Christ, that you will do so before it's too late. Because either you will bow before him now as your Savior and Lord, or you will bow before him someday as your Lord and judge and executioner. Because we are told in Scripture that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and those who are under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for all of us who know and love Christ, may we not only ponder these great truths, but may we be bold in proclaiming them, right? Folks, pray for opportunities to share just just something that you've heard here today. Pray for those opportunities and then be bold enough to say something. You never know when one of God's elect is there and the Spirit of God has already prepared that heart and they hear the good news and they grab a hold of it and they're saved. Oh, yes, most people will laugh at you, but some will be saved. For God's word never returns void. It will either harden or soften hearts and look for those opportunities. And Christmas is the great opportunity that we have to share Christ, whether it's in the barber's chair or whatever chair you ladies call it when you're getting dutied up or around the, the, the coffee break, the water, whatever. You, you get the point. Use this as an opportunity to say, oh, I love the Christmas season. It's amazing to think that Christ came to this earth to be my Savior and my Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these glorious truths. Our hearts are animated whenever we contemplate them. And although right now we live still in this fallen world, we do so with the hope that you are coming again. And while you came the first time in humility, the next time you will come in glory. While you came the first time as a savior to seek and to save the lost, we know that you will come again as the king of kings and Lord of lords to judge the nations. So, Lord, we thank you for the gospel that has changed us because we thank you for Christ who is in us and we in him. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.